Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Before we begin today's episode, Nikki and I wanted to issue an additional trigger warning. Today's episode will discuss sensitive topics, including mass shootings and school shootings. We understand that these topics can be emotionally challenging and can evoke traumas for some of our listeners. So we wanted to make you aware of this content in advance so you can decide if it is appropriate for you to continue listening to the episode. Should you need to refrain from listening this week, we completely understand, and we will be back next week with a new episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Nikki. And I'm Mariah. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body to Burial. Welcome back to another episode. If it's your first time listening... Welcome. We're so glad you're here. If it's not your first time, welcome back. We're glad you're here too. Thanks for joining us for another episode. Nikki will be joining us momentarily. So I'm going to kind of get us started for today. This week we are welcoming Catherine and Catherine is an active shooter expert and former FBI executive. And today she's going to be leading us through the development of the active shooter protocols that were developed by her team at the FBI. I think we're going to have a very impactful, emotional, insightful conversation, and I'm excited to bring her on. So without further ado, please welcome Catherine. How's it going? Oh, good. A little crazy as always, but good. Thank you first for making the time this afternoon to speak with us. We really appreciate it, and we're excited to have you join us. Yes, thank you. My pleasure. I hope I can be helpful and do something that's worth the listen. So tell us a little bit about your time at the FBI. You were the former head of the Active Shooter Program. Is that correct? Actually, I I just created the Active Shooter Program program for the FBI after the Sandy Hook Elementary School mass killings. So before that, I was just going about my business, FBI agent, working national security matters, the standard stuff you work, espionage, terrorism, things mm-hmm. like that. And as sometimes happens in jobs, I was kind of voluntold. Uh, <laughs> that's what we call it. I love that word. That's a good word. <laughs> Sometimes it's that when you're standing in a line and you're the only one who isn't smart enough to stand back fast enough. (laughs) So I was in the building in the director's corridor, as we would say. And at the time I was working in our our crisis uh, component, which handles what we call the organization that has all the toys, CIRG, CIRG, C-I-R-G, CIRG. And they have a critical incident. They're the critical incident group. So they have the bomb techs and the HRT, hostage rescue teams, and they oversee the SWAT teams out in the field, but they also have all kinds of other um, unimaginable and very important toys when we need to get a boy out of a bunker after he's been kidnapped off of a school bus, or we need to assist in recovering somebody who's been kidnapped. So that's CERG, and CERG handles all crises. I mean, CERG, that's our center, our command post and headquarters, FBI headquarters. So I was working there on some things, and then uh, Sandy Hook happened. 
And of course, you know, uh, there were all those children in the classrooms and the adults, six women who were working in the school at the time, who were also killed. And really, there was this outcry from the public, as you would imagine, and you were hopefully all part of, but also from the White House at the time, the Obama White House, saying, we need answers. So we need to gather together our executive team from the executive side. So the president right, has all these departments of Department of Treasury, Department of Justice, Department of Health and Human Services, Department of fill in the blank, Department of Education, right? So the White House got together and decided that then Vice President Biden, Mr. Obama, decided that Mr. Biden's staff would oversee a a concerted effort by all of the relevant federal agencies to see what we could do, how we could support local communities. Because when one of these tragedies happened, the FBI is there, Department of Homeland Security is there, but we're not the ones who are there first, generally, right? It's the local law enforcement, it's local fire department, it's that volunteer firefighter who lives next door to you who's there. And so it was our job to figure out what can we do as a group? And so that's what happened. I got hauled over to this White House team. Very quickly, we were meeting every day, trying to understand the landscape of this type of violence. What is it? What do we know about it? And and quite frankly, there are a few arguments about whether it was happening, why it was happening, what was causing it. And that's kind of where we started. And that was, uh, it's hard to believe, but 10 years ago. What kind of came out of that entire program that got set up? What are there protocols now? What were the takeaways, I guess? Yeah, I think things that people have incorporated into their daily lives, but they don't know that's kind of where it came from. So one of the most prominent and caused the most arguments was the protocol, the run, hide, fight came out of that. A lot of people know run, hide, fight. They know what that means. A lot of people have been trained in it or some version of it, right? It doesn't have to be those words, but I think those are the best words for it. But but a lot of training, a lot of preparedness is out there. People understand, oh, what does run, hide, fight mean? Now people know what that means. Just like they know, see something, say something, which came out of 9-11, right? Mm-hmm. See something, say something. Mm-hmm. And out of Sandy Hook, we had run, hide, fight is probably one of the more prominent things that came out of that. And a shout out to the city of Houston mayor's office, because they're actually the ones who created that. And I called the mayor's office and said, we want it for the country. Can we just adopt that as the national policy? And we talked a lot about it and they said, yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> we adopted that. We supported the a redesign of all this is very governmenty, but in the Department of Education, they kind of did emergency planning this way. And FEMA, who is the king of emergency planning, part of DHS, FEMA did it a different way. And everybody kind of had their own way of doing it. And the White House said to us, as you would expect, uh, Mr. Obama's uh, office uh, said to us, you know, figure it out. Uh, get, But we want one, we want one message. You know, the, the country cannot adopt policies and plans at a local level if the federal government is recommending 10 different types. So we adopted how a a single format following the FEMA policies on how to develop emergency operations plans, not just for mass shootings, but this this kind of, it's like Tang in, in the space program. It catapulted emergency planning for all of the United States. It catapulted all of that planning into a singular plan something that we had never had before in the United States. So it was things like that. And there were a lot more substantive things. And also the training for law enforcement. And then for me as a 20-year FBI agent, that that was the biggest thing is we told law enforcement, this is the new rule. There is, there is no contain and wait. There is no wait for the SWAT team. 
there is no wait until you get a team of a handful of guys and gals together who've got their bulletproof vests on. If you're carrying a gun, you are going after the shooter, period. You go to the shooter until the shooter is no longer a threat. And that for law enforcement, that was the biggest thing. And is that kind of what their protocol was? It was to wait for a SWAT team to come in before taking action? Well, in the world of these types of mass shootings, the shooter is not like a murder-suicide in a home where a guy kills his wife and three kids, the domestic violence. But in a public mass situation like this, mass killing situation, Mm -hmm. we had historically seen some of this in the United States as far back as in the 60s, uh, Texas Tower shooting which was a sniper on top of a tower on their, on the UT campus. Columbine okay. High School, another great example, oh, yeah. a sad yeah. example, Columbine. And there were other shootings, but maybe one of the most frightening examples is many years ago in the 70s and the 80s, we saw contain and wait policies where the law enforcement officers would surround and wait until the SWAT team came in. And we saw that happen for an hour on live TV at a San Ysidro McDonald's where we were watching a shooter walking around this building that was all encased in glass shooting at people because they were waiting for a SWAT team to come. Um, that was in California. So those policies, those contain and wait policies, they disappeared after Columbine. There was this effort to to do more like, hey, we need to get in there faster. After Sandy Hook, it was, we're not waiting for teams. You're going. You're going if it's one person, you're going. And okay. that's what Sandy Hook gave us. And then this is just a clarifying question. So when the FBI makes these, I don't know if you call them policies or procedures, makes these new guidelines, do they become mandated across every single state or do the states have to vote on them? How does it become actionable? You know what? That's a great question. The FBI is part of the Department of Justice, right? It's federal. In the United States, there are about 18,000 different law enforcement agencies and 800,000 law enforcement officers. So how do you train, right? That's what it comes down to. Here's a new policy. How do you train for that? There is no federal control over state and local law enforcement. But what we can do is incentivize, right? We can be supportive of them. So I said, look, how can we do this? I used to live in a small town uh, for a while that was 5,000 people or something like that. It had, you know, 12 law enforcement officers in it, that kind of thing. Most law enforcement agencies have less than 20 officers. They can't afford to take somebody and send them off to someplace to train for a week. The department literally cannot afford to take people off the street for that amount of time. And there's no money for it in local budgets. And that's not in just some cities. That's in the majority of cities in the United States. And so I talked our guys down in CERG and said, look, you're in charge of our tactical officers in the field. Let's train the tactical officers in this style of police protocol. And we have tactical officers in all 56 field offices of the FBI in the United States. We train 330 of our tactical officers who spread out over 56 field offices. They paired up with local officers, sheriffs, deputies, state troopers, uh, county sheriffs, police, state police, local police. We took our 330 tactical officers, trained them up, to, and then trained them and trained the trainer and had them go out to their local departments and train them all locally for free. That's how we did it. Wow. Okay. Your okay. tax dollars at work right there, baby. <laughs> I support it. I support the initiative. So happy to contribute my fair share. But I think it was a good, I tried to make it to be a good use of tax dollars where it wasn't like a one-time yeah. training and then it went away. We took the officers and said, Go forth and multiply. We want to train. We have 800,000 officers to train in the United States. We want those officers trained and we want train the trainers. We want trainers in those departments as best they can. So that's why this Mm -hmm. protocol went out so quickly because 
I, my team pushed it out so quickly because Sandy Hook, you know, it was bad. Yeah. I have a quick question. So the protocol where they're supposed to just jump right in, but the newest one that just happened in Texas, did that not go with the protocol that you guys have been putting in place the past 10 years? You mean the elementary school yes. in Uvalde? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was bad. That was not up to protocol standard. When you said that after Sandy Hook and the, everything was put into place, and then I was thinking, then what the heck happened there? So I'm going to say it with this caveat. There have been, there will continue to be evaluations of what happened in Uvalde. And the state has come out with their initial report, and the Department of Justice is coming out with some other report. That happens after every incident, right? There's an after action, they call it, and they look and see what did we do wrong? You know, what did we do right? And what can we do better next time? And so that's kind of a standard protocol for law enforcement and not just law enforcement, but fire and EMS. What did you do wrong? What did you do right? And how can we fix the mistakes and do better? So Uvalde, the hard lesson for Uvalde for all of law enforcement was you may have the training But if you don't know how to execute it, if your supervisors, your managers, your executives don't know how to be the decision makers and make those tough decisions, then that's what's going to happen. And that's what Uvalde taught us because initially people called me for a lot of reasons. I get calls from newspapers. Can you write this op-ed piece? I get calls from television. Can you come on and talk to us tonight about this? Can you help explain to the public what's going on? And so I did a lot of that after Uvalde. And So, of course, one of the things that I needed to know right away was, were they trained in the protocol? And they were trained in the protocol. And I learned that very quickly. That's one of the first questions that we ask is how much training do they have? Were they trained? You can't ask somebody to do something they're not trained to do, but they were trained. I don't want to say every single officer there. There were more than 100 officers there, but I can guarantee you not having the numbers in front of me, but a vast majority of the officers who responded to Ubaldi were trained, if not all of them. Now, can they not go in because the one making the decisions, he's not sending them and they can't just go like rogue and go on their own? They have to follow command? Well, you'd like to think that nobody's just kind of going rogue. There were officers who did try to go in. There were 19 children, two adults who died. One of the adults who died, her husband was an officer who is seen on film trying to go inside. She talked to him on the phone and said, I've been shot. I'm bleeding. Please come. And he arrived at the site, headed into the hallway, got to the hallway and they stopped him. And he said, she called me, she's bleeding. And they said, no, you're not going in. So imagine living with that. Right. Um, And, and that's why we see suicides after these situations. So these officers, I can't speak for them or about them as a group, except to say that as a group, There was a lot of uh, groupthink going on. There was a lot of, I thought that there was somebody in charge in the hallway making decisions. I thought there was somebody outside making decisions. I don't know who was making decisions. You know, I thought that this was being handled by, you know, there was a a lot of second guessing and groupthink. And if you look at the, I mean, not to get too detailed, but if you look at the closer camera coverage of the shooters and then of the officers who follow in, as soon as the officers didn't follow him into the classroom, they failed in protocol. And then after that, they were just trying to clean up a mess. And then the head of that big mess would be the guy that is in charge of making the the call? Would he be the one responsible for all that? Well, there's a lot of people who will be responsible for it, but I'll tell you that the The officer who follows the protocol is that the first officer makes a judgment call on ability to go in and takes another officer with you if you can, if it's brief, but you make the decision. You don't have to call back to get an okay, right? 
In the old days, you'd call back to get an okay. There's no calling back to get an okay. Go. And then when everyone else comes, they come. Correct. It's not really any different than any other police protocol in that if you're the first officer on the scene, you're the officer in charge. That's a lot of pressure. Well, you want to hear a funny story? I think it's a funny story. It's a very fast, funny yeah. story. When I was at the FBI Academy, and one of my instructors was speaking to our class, and he's explaining communications and how important it is and this how you respond to things. And he said, so what if you're a week out of the FBI Academy and you get a call that there's a bank robbery underway a block from where you are. What do you do? And one of the other students in the class yells out, I'd drive around the block. And actually the instructor said, yeah, if you don't know what you're doing, don't show up. Because oh. when, you, when you arrive, you're in charge. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. But now with all the school shooting stuff, I've had to tell the boys, what do you do if something happens like that? When I went to school, there was nothing happening big like this. And it really hits home because you think, oh my, they're babies. They would, they don't even know what to do. So, you know, a couple of things. Can I tell you some things that are encouraging? There were half dozen children who fled because they had been trained in run, hide, fight from a classroom at Sandy Hook who survived. Oh, that's fantastic. At the Virginia Tech shooting, which is, you know, my home turf, the shooter went to my kid's high school and lived half a mile from my house. At Virginia, there was an entire classroom of students taking a science class on the second floor in Norris Hall. And the instructor who actually had fled during the Holocaust from Europe and survived with his family was teaching this class, and when the shooter came, the unlocked door, he and the PA held the locked door. They held the door so the shooter couldn't come in, and he had all of the students flee out a second-story window when they survived. Wow. So, you know, this idea that uh, and the Sandy Hook kids, they were trained in run, hide, fight. They were trained in a protocol for even an emergency, and in one of the classrooms still had, had shades over the window when the shooter went by and they, we believe that's why the shooter walked by that classroom because the window was covered and the lights were out. So you say it's scary to talk to your kids, but I think that most kids know this happens. Kids know this happens. If parents are naive when they don't have this conversation with their kids in, in two ways. One is you can lay your fears and your kids' fears if you understand that you know they're going through fire drills, but you know what that is. So you don't have to talk to them about it. I mean, I'm so old. I ducked under a desk in case there was a nuclear attack. So, you know, how do you explain that to your kids? Well, kids just go through it. They kids go through training. They take so much of it in stride, and the teachers know how to convey it to them. And the kids aren't nearly as frightened as the parents are. We train children in fire emergencies, and we haven't lost a child in the United States to a fire since 1950. But we still train. Why can't this just be an emergency drill? If we incorporate, it's a new thing. But if we incorporate it as part of hey, we're doing emergency drills in our schools. If there's a stranger danger outside, then we lock down. If there's an inside problem, then we go out, right? If we change the language, this is my policy. This is in my head. This is what I'm doing for the next, for 2023. You're the first ones I'm telling this to. <laughs> Perfect. If we, you're, this, yeah, it's breaking news. Um, in 2023, this is going to be my mission. We're going to change this whole fear of teaching parents about school shootings to let's teach parents and kids about school safety. 
Let's make this one of the safety protocols. And then it's not so scary. And we don't even have to talk about guns. Yeah, I think we it's hard. We just talk about security. I think it's hard for me because what was most jarring is a couple of years ago, I guess it would have been five years ago, four years ago, um, I joined like a parent committee at our school that was like our safety committee. And they were talking and going through all of the drills that they do on campus and all of these things. And they do active shooter drills. But what was alarming to me was they didn't have a standard protocol that they encouraged teachers to use. And we were at a charter school, so, you know, it's complicated and they have their own things. But it was there scary. Is a, actually, that, there like, is a standard protocol, yeah. right? I mean, now there is one, and I think that you've got in on the cusp of it. And that's part of it, right? You're when mm-hmm. We're still making the sausage, right? And I'm not, uh, I'm going to tell you, this is going to sound like I'm pandering, but I'm not. But it's such a standard protocol I wrote this book that came out this year and I put my entire training protocol and how I teach a class into the book. Cause it's like, everybody should have this. It's not that complicated. We teach yeah. kids about fire. Don't touch them. We teach kids about don't stand at the top of the stairs. Like, what do you do when your kid starts to stand and walks near the stairs? You like scream at them until they sit yeah. down. So we, we yell at a kid who is going to go towards the street, no matter how much we think we're going to scare them, it will scare them more to be squashed by a car. We put kids on planes and we like to fl- let the flight attendants say, in the case of an emergency landing and if the air pressure and we, we give the, all these frightening warnings on planes and we don't think, oh my God, kids can't hear any of that. It's all in yeah. how adults communicate it. And I think yeah. that there is a really good protocol. I wrote a whole chapter on training kids and a whole section on training elementary school kids and preschool kids. It's not about training kids about guns. It's about training kids about following rules in an emergency. That's all it is. And I think, like you said, it's like a reframe of the thing. I think it's something that Mm -hmm. when I sat on that committee, like I went homesick to my stomach because I hadn't heard these conversations and I wasn't sure how to have this conversation in a way that maybe wasn't terrifying to my child, but gave them the tools of, yeah, probably more to me, a hundred percent. Right. Um, Right. Because it's your kids. Yeah. You know, elementary school shootings are incredibly rare, incredibly rare. The shooter is always from outside the school, except for Mm -hmm. our six-year-old the other day. And that wasn't about a school shooting. That was about an unsecured gun, right? The elementary school shootings are incredibly rare. Let me just give your listeners some quick data. They're very rare. There's a handful of them over the last 20 years, right? And middle school shooters and high school shooters are from the school. They take a gun that they have access to and take it back to their school. In almost every instance, in a handful of high school situations, you have a kid who is out of school a year or two. But in in the case of middle school and high school shooters, your shooters are inside. So it's not about magnetometers. It's about making sure that you create a culture Uh, where you can identify kids who are under stress and in your schools. And so when you talk about school shootings and school shootings scare me and school shootings scare me, which I like to hear that because when people are scared, they do something about it. But shootings in places of business are twice as common as shootings in schools. Twice as common. Wow, really? Twice as common. Public shootings, active shooters are twice as common in places of business than they are in schools. When you're worried about that kid who's playing a video game, which is irrelevant, videos are irrelevant to whether somebody's going to be a shooter. But when you're worried about some 15-year-old playing video games in the basement, you should be looking at his dad upstairs. Almost all the shooters are male and the average age of a shooter, 35 years old. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay. So now I have to ask you though, have 
there always been incidences like this of males in their 30s going out and I don't know if it's rage killing, emotional killing. I don't know what you would classify it as. And we just didn't hear about it because we didn't have internet and all of these things and news didn't travel as quickly. So was it always happening and now it's just more in our face or has it actually increased? It's increased substantially so in why? the last 20 years. Do you think it's a mental health a issue? Do you think it's no. a gun control issue? So I think there are a lot of different reasons why people do it. It's almost like you're not, uh, no offense, but you're not asking like the right question uh, when it comes sure. to like, say, mental health, right? So if you say, I hear all the time, oh, you know, these people, they all have mental health problems. That's what it is. Uh, somebody who gets to a point where they choose to pull a trigger and kill a bunch of innocent people, they're clearly struggling through a mental health crisis, right? That's a, that's a mental wellness issue at that moment. But the question is, is mental health a predictive factor? No, not at all, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody who's under mental health care or has mental health uh, management issues, is that an, a predictive factor? Are we looking for people who have mental health issues? No. Are we looking for people who play video games? No. Are we looking for people who have been in the military and know how to shoot guns? No. So what I'm saying is those are things that people say, oh, it's, it must be all these reasons why. And I think they say that because they want to say, well, that's not me. That's not my family. I don't have that problem. Right. I hear, oh, it's only in these homes where these um, parents are divorced. No, it's only in these homes where these kids drop out of school. Not really. If you look at the type of violence in the United States, the majority of violence is committed by people who do not have any mental health diagnoses or crises ever. That's the majority of violence, right? So it's kind of like, what are you looking at? But when you're, your question, because I realize now I'm babbling on it, I apologize to both no, of you. No, no, it's but, super interesting. So please babble. When you, when you say, well, you know, what is causing it, it is absolutely increasing. That was what we had arguments about after Sandy Hook. Quite frankly, Department of Education executives sat across from me and said, the news is just covering this story more. There are not more of the shootings. So I literally tagged analysts in our office, we gathered law enforcement records over the next year and a half. And I wrote a study that said, yes, the numbers are up. And when I wrote that study, I thought the numbers were astonishing. We released it in 2015, and we looked at uh, 14 years of period of these types of shootings, active shooters. In the kind of the first few years, the average number of shootings a year was six in the first seven years of the study, six. So 2000 to 2005. In the second half of the study, the average number of incidents a year was 16. Wow. 16. So we went from six to 16, and I started back after Columbine. So we started 2000, and we went all the way kind of to Sandy Hook, right? So we were looking historically. So what's happened since Sandy Hook? If there were the average number of shootings in that time period right around Sandy Hook was 16, 17 a year. Last year, using the exact same methodology, the exact same methodology, the FBI in 2021 counted 62 incidents. Oh my gosh. Wow. wow. 16 to 62, six to 62, 10 times. So there absolutely are more of these mass public shootings. Now, let me assuage your concern, public. Violence itself is dramatically down in the United States. Just like on a daily basis, right. domestic yep. and all, all that type of stuff? Yep. Violence is way down in the United States. People think, oh, no, that can't possibly be. But it is. And we know that because we have been keeping statistics on violence for years and years and years. So we know that violence is way down, even though people think, oh, these shootings are terrible. Yeah, the shootings are increasing, but violence itself is down. 
um, pretty significantly. Why do you think that is? I think that we're living in a crowded world and we're more accountable. We have better security systems in place. People do logical things that they didn't do before, like lock their doors. I mean, it's astonishing. Uh, you know, um, people who say, well, I never locked the door when I grew up. I was just talking to somebody the other day about some kids they saw in the parking lot carrying around a black duffel bag. You know, they're looking for door handles that are open in cars in a parking lot. They're stealing stuff. So I think we're more aware of the simple things that we can do. So let me tell you one other fact that I think would be like, uh, you'd be like, what? That's not even possible. Let me ask you this question. If I told you there were roughly, say, 2021, I'm pulling numbers out of my head a little bit here, but uh, say there were roughly 46,000 firearms deaths in the United States, death by firearm, okay. 46,000. How many of those do you think are homicides? Oh. Or what percentage uh, of the 46,000? Are a homicide? Mm -hmm. <sighs> I'd say like 60% are a homicide. So the answer is closer to 30%. Really? What? Right. Wow. Two out of three firearms deaths in the United States are suicides. Really? The numbers vary, you know, year to year, but two out of three firearms deaths are suicides. So my expertise that I get called on is about these uh, mass shootings, active shooters, the public mass shootings. Right. And I do know that well, but in order to understand that well and understand the full landscape, I really need to understand all of violence, all, the concept of all of violence, firearms violence, all of other violence. We had 200,000 unintentional deaths in the United States, according to Hopkins research, that were when they were tracking people who came into emergency rooms and things like that. 200,000 deaths in 2020. 42,000 of those were from people who had unintended falls and died. Whoa. We have a lot of death for a lot of different reasons in the United States. I think there were like 87,000 people who died from poisoning. Like, how's that even possible? So we lose, we lose more people from motor vehicles and more people from unintentional deaths than we do from firearms violence. Firearms violence doesn't even make the top 10 list. And when firearms gets involved in the top 15, what fits into there is intentional self-harm suicide, right? Intentional self-harm suicide is, is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. So taking a big step back, you know, what does that tell me? And whether it's a six-year-old who carries a gun to school or it's a, another person who's under, under a lot of stress because they didn't get their promotion and they lost their job or they're filing for bankruptcy and they don't think their boss understands them. And that woman who got that job instead of me, she, she deserves to die. Those people all have access to unsecured firearms or firearms that they have access to that even though the people around them know that they are under a lot of stress. So really uh, the solution to firearms injuries, whether it's a school shooting or whether it's a shooting at the mall or at the movie theater or on the baseball field, the solution is that you have to be aware of the people around you who are under stress. But when people are stressed and they commit these types of violent acts, every one of them follows a relatively predictable pathway towards this violence. And that pathway towards the violence begins with this anger that is most often leaked. We call it leakage, vocalized, where they're angry because that guy took my spot. He always parks across the street in my house. I always have to back out of my driveway a certain way because that XX across the street um, does this and that. And uh, that shithead at work doesn't whatever. Um, so what starts with anger and then it moves to process. And what we're looking for is their behaviors of concern. They begin to 
shoot more often, they gather their ammunition, they buy equipment like bulletproof vests. 30 to 40% of them commit suicide. So they begin to give away their things. They stop taking their medications. They stop taking care of themselves physically. They stop taking a shower or they change their behavior. What you're looking for is atypical behavior. You know your spouse, your partner, your kids better than anybody else. The guy who works next to you, the guy in your carpool going to work. That lady who sits across from you on the bus every day, you go to work, you both work across the street from each other, and you see her every day on the bus. She has that purple coat on, and she always wears those gloves. If her behavior changes, you're the one who's going to notice it because you see them every day. So that's what we're looking for is atypical behavior. Because once you get this idea that you're going to commit a violent act, they plan and prepare sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months, sometimes for more than a year. They plan and prepare these violent acts. And then they buy the things they need, they run surveillance detection on these locations, and then they commit and they do the violent act. And all of those actions, all that atypical behavior, is what only the people who are closest to them can see. Do people not say anything because they think, oh, they're just going through a rough time or, oh, they got a new hobby? Right, right. And I'll tell you, when I wrote this research for the FBI on 160 active shooter incidents in the United States over this 14-year period. And then took all those files and gave them to our behavioral people at Quantico down there and said, okay, now tell us about the shooters. So for the second part of the project, our behavioral people looked at 63 of the shooters and they found that the people who got the information, 92% of the time, schoolmates had information, specific information about concerning behaviors, not just ideas, not like had a feeling specific information, including leakage where they were communicated directly. When people get this leakage from the future shooter, 83% of the time, they went back to the shooter and spoke specifically to them and said, hey, you know, you're talking about shooting somebody up or you, you sound like you're under a lot of stress and, you know, you, you're saying that these people are going to pay. 83% of the time, they went back to the shooter and that's not the answer. 54% of the time they said they did nothing once they got this information. You need to report to, as they say, an adult, right? And not just linear. Don't report it to one person. Report it to the FBI's tip line. Report it to your local police. Report it to the county mental health people. They'll pass it on to the police. Report what you've heard to an anonymous reporting system. Many states and schools have anonymous reporting systems out there that they didn't have before. Your state has one. If you don't know what it is, call your school and ask what it is. Even if you don't have a kid in school, call and ask what it is or call your county mental health. Because what we knew is that who noticed the concerning behaviors? Like I said, if it was a student, 92% of the schoolmates. If, if somebody was in a relationship, 87% of the spouts are domestic partners. Noticed concerning behaviors, but very few of them reported it. 75% of the teachers and staff noticed it. If it was a student, 68% of the family members said, yeah, I noticed those concerning behaviors. Specifically, I noticed this and this and this. What did you do about it? More than 50% said I did nothing. That's a big number. Why do you think people f don't do anything? Do you think because they feel like it's none of their business or maybe they're making yeah, a bigger deal out of something? It's yeah. clear. People say, I don't want to get him in trouble. I, I don't, I don't want to get him in trouble. I'm afraid that I'll get in trouble. I don't want him to be mad at me. I, I think that the police will just go and arrest him. I don't want that to happen. Um, I don't want to get involved. All of those excuses are all great until you think about the fact that people who didn't get involved 
and we're worried about somebody else. People died, you know, it's not it. There's no give backs. You can't, you can't fix it if you leave it in this situation. Now, this might be a really stupid question, but other countries, do they have high numbers of school shootings and active shooters like this? And we just don't hear about it? No, they do not have the same number. There are some places that have more than other places, but no place has mass public shootings like the United States. Why do you think that is? I think the obvious correlation is uh, that places that have more mass shootings do have more weapons. That's just the fact. But for all the listeners who are saying, well, yeah, just get rid of the guns, I would say, there are 400 million guns estimated in the United States, and there's 300 and some million people. There isn't a method to get rid of the guns in the United States, unless you have a magic wand. Um, so we have to work harder at other things. We have to work smarter at so many other things that we can do. And that's really my message to a lot of people, is if you stop at, these people are all crazy, and we just need to get rid of the guns, you're just not even trying. You're not even trying. There's so many things you can do. All these numbers are really mind-blowing. When you break it down to numbers and statistics, it's pretty interesting how high they are. I think for years we didn't have any of this data. When I joined the White House team, the Department of Education said the media is just making a big deal out of this. And I didn't really have any data to disprove him. And, you know, the advantage of being in the FBI is I said, well, we'll find the data. And now the FBI has more than 20 years of data showing this steady increase on these types of shootings. So what are you doing now, now that you left the FBI? When I left the FBI, I retired. They have a mandatory retirement age and, and they kick you out. Oh, really? Okay. 57. What? Wow. Yeah. No, so 57 is mandatory. We have to go at 57. Yeah, you move up through uh, the ranks. You become an executive. I was an FBI executive and started the active shooter program during Sandy Hook. And then I spent the last year of my year at the FBI making sure that I could find the right people to continue and lecturing. And so after I left the FBI, it was just really hard for me to just, you know, walk away. There was so much still to be done. There's still so much to be done. So, uh, I mean, I think one of the things that I've learned, though, since I left the FBI, and actually what I do, as they say, for a living is, I consult with corporations and schools, advising on policies. But I will say that also what surprised me over the last few years is that even the largest corporations don't really have the knowledge base that they need to do this. Security is a cost code for companies, and it's a cost code for school systems meaning that it doesn't provide any revenue to businesses. It just costs them. And as long as security, all aspects of security are a cost code, it's no benefit to a company or a school to increase security unless there's a moral reason, there's a financial reason. And so what I try to do in my work with companies is, and I think I've had good fortune to be able to do this, is you know, when you consult with one of the largest hospital systems in the country and you help them change their policies, then I know that hospitals all over the country are safer. That's that's the kind of work that I do is to say, let's get you closer to where you need to be, even though it's a cost. And let's not waste money on something that you shouldn't waste money on. Can you do consultant work? Like, does the FBI, now that you have been uh, are too old, apparently, that really still is blowing my mind. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I can't believe it. Can you do consulting for them? Because your amount of knowledge and what you've done is a lot more than someone who just came in. Well, in general, the FBI is not permitted to bring their people back. I mean, there's some general exceptions to that, but the FBI is one of the agencies that doesn't have people retire and then go right back 
as a contractor. Um, there are some agencies that do have that, but the FBI isn't one of them. So do I still talk to the people at the FBI? Of course, but not as a consultant and certainly not as a paid consultant. That fact just really blows my mind. It's crazy to me. I know. You never know. Old, old. I feel old every day. If you don't have any other questions, because we're right up on our timeline. and Oh, I didn't even realize that. I'm sorry. I know. It's okay. It's okay. I know it's hard uh, to stick within it. So if you don't have anything super pressing that you want to ask her, I think we could probably segue over to fun questions. Yeah. Okay. So I always like to start with this one. If you were to pick your last meal, what would it be? Oh, French fries. From where? McDonald's, of course. Yep, yep. As long as they've got enough salt on them. Yes. I always like to ask this one. What is one of your hobbies? I'm actually, I'm, I hike. That sounds goofy, but. <laughs> That's not goofy. No. That's great. I like to hike because get out and see so many things. Like hiking up a mountain? Well, you know, I live in Virginia. They don't have big mountains here, but they do have valleys and parks. And yeah, there's a certain amount of up and down and whatnot. So if they're going to make a movie about you and your time at the FBI, who's going to play you? Oh, well, first, that would never happen. But hey, you I never know. <laughs> you never know. I don't know. They ran a television pilot when I was working at our Washington field office. And the position I was holding at the office, they killed that character off in the opening scene. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Some of the guys, not happy, guys. Not happy. You killed my character on the very first scene. Oh, no. <laughs> But uh, I don't know. My gosh, I have no idea. I bow down to these beautiful, talented women who are in movies and film. I don't know. All right. And then this is the one that I always like to ask. What is something you collect? I don't. I'm not a stuff person, but <laughs> I do have my share of cookbooks. And I have not that it's sensible. But as a child, I had a rock collection and coins. Okay. And to this day, every country I go to, I have to bring some coins back. And randomly at this very moment in my kitchen sink are six big rocks <laughs> that <laughs> I thought were pretty. <laughs> and so I just, I just wash dishes around them. Oh, I see. You collect a little bit of something when you really think about I it. <laughs> You're right. You're so right. <laughs> All right. Well, we don't want to keep you too much longer because we're way over your time limit. I'm sorry about that. No, that's okay. What you guys are doing is really important, and I appreciate you giving me the time and the airtime to do this because I think that we do have the ability to stop these killings and stop these shootings, but we have to engage and, and understand what we can do and how much of it is our own responsibility. An estimated third of American households have unsecured guns in them. Lock your guns up. Another fact that blows my mind. Yeah. And that's a very easy thing to do. An easy way to contribute so to a solution. Right. And this idea that people think, well, uh, my kid, I trusted him. I taught him gun safety. It's great. You're not in charge of your kid's brain that is rebuilding while it's a teenager. And what you worry about for a bankruptcy, they worry about when they break a pencil in school. So don't think yeah. that your kids are you and can handle the stresses in the same way. They're going to respond, and if they have access to a gun, they're going to see that as a solution. I've seen it happen. But we have the answers. Please leave it on that note. We have the answers. We just have to be brave enough to execute them. That's perfectly said. Let's leave it there. That's beautiful. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at bodytoburial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.